Hello and welcome to episode number 87 of the Agro Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been published onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, April 12th, 2010. Thank you for joining us. On this episode of the podcast, I will be playing the second part of my interview with Michael Schumann, who is the author of The Small Mart Revolution. The interview is just over half an hour, so please enjoy part two of my interview with Michael Schumann. I think that uh, we've kind of addressed many of the arguments in the in the first half of your book, and that's really about articulating a vision and an alternative to an America by and for mega corporations. Now, the second part, on the other hand, is about practical strategies for making this vision a reality. Let's start with consumers. Tell us about what consumers can do to relocalize their purchasing. Well, the nearly 80 networks that are affiliated with Bali, um, and at this point there's perhaps 50 networks that are affiliated with Amoeba, um, these networks primarily are supporting buy local campaigns. And they come under the titles of, you know, buy local, think local first, the 10% shift. Um, but they're all more or less doing the same thing. They're educating consumers and businesses about the benefits of buying local and all of the opportunities that they are overlooking um, by not buying local. So, so the idea of think local first is really saying, look, we know you're going to buy some of your stuff non-local some of the time, uh, but if you become a better shopper, if you become more aware of what exists in your community in terms of local goods and services, you will buy local more of the time. And, and in point of fact, we have a fair amount of evidence that those communities that have launched Local First campaigns have seen their local businesses do better. Um, so, you know, this is a stimulus package that works. Um, now, there's lots of tools that people are using for these buy local campaigns, um, you know, just kind of regular educational materials, posters, labels on products, directories, uh, local credit and debit cards, local gift cards, alternative money systems, uh, brokerage houses that put local businesses together in new deals, um, bidding services that help local businesses enter contracts with government agencies. So there's a bunch of tools out there that are emerging that are, I think, you know, speeding things up on knitting together con local consumers with local businesses. Now, you also talk about, um, and this is something you discuss in detail, and it's the first time I've seen these issues dealt with at this level of detail. You talk about the capacity of a community to capitalize Lois Endeavors. You bring a hum human and community scale to so many important elements of a capital economy, like stock markets, investment funds, banking, and pension funds. Tell us about how these things that have now become really associated with TINA businesses 
can actually be used with great success for local economic development. Yeah, so this this to me is the, you know, 8,000-pound gorilla in the room. Um, because if I had to identify the single biggest obstacle to our moving towards stronger local economies and, and the single biggest obstacle toward our moving toward green economies, it would be that we have obsolete capital markets. Um, and one way of understanding how obsolete these markets are is, uh, and let's go back to something I mentioned earlier, that half the private economy is local small business, and that these local small businesses are more profitable than the non-local large businesses. You would think that in a rational investment system that roughly half or at least half of our investment capital would therefore go into those local small businesses. In point of fact, almost none of it does. Uh, in point of fact, if you ask friends, neighbors, ask yourself, where is your pension fund today? What you will find is that pension funds are you know, 99.99% invested in Fortune 500 companies. Um, and they totally neglect the small business community. Now, why has this happened? In my mind, the biggest reason is that we have securities laws that were enacted in the early Jurassic period. Um, and these securities laws make it extremely expensive and difficult for small, unaccredited investors, who, by the way, uh, constitute 98% of the population. Um, but it's very difficult for the typical person to invest in a small business because the legal costs of doing so are outrageously expensive. Now, interestingly... Some states, like New Mexico, um, have made it very easy and cheap to create local stock, small local stock issues. Um, but no one does it because you also need the rest of the market infrastructure to make this happen. You need broker-dealers who are going to sell local stocks. You need stock exchanges who are going to trade these local stocks. Uh, and none of those things really exist yet. But I believe we're on the precipice of a truly extraordinary financial revolution. Um, there are companies right now that are filing papers with the SEC who I believe over the next two or three years will begin operating local stock exchanges. And these will be virtual computer-driven exchanges that will enable, say, companies in New Mexico that establish, you know, issue small stock on the cheap to then trade their stocks um, with other New Mexicans and to do this very cost-effectively. Once that begins to happen, then we will find investment funds that begin to put together portfolios of those stocks and it will be possible for us to start putting our pension funds into, say, portfolios of local food businesses or portfolios of local energy businesses. 
And at that point, I believe that at least half of the traditional investment economy is going to shift dramatically. Trillions of dollars will shift out of those Fortune 500 companies and into local small businesses. And that shift will be the most dramatic death knell to globalization that has ever happened. No one is imagining that at this point. And yet I, I believe that it is likely to happen once we, once we reform our capital markets. Well, I would beg to differ. I'm certainly imagining it and, and hoping for it. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I want to ask you about that is what can people who are listening – I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there – uh, many of whom listen to this podcast and others who may not, but I know that um, they would like to get involved in this some way, whether it be through investing their money or whether they are entrepreneurs and need some capital to you know, jumpstart their entrepreneurial activities. What can people who have an interest in this and what you're talking about and local, relocalizing money, basically, what can they do to accelerate this process? Well, um, there, there's a bunch of different things. So, I, so I'm I'm working on a um, you know series of papers and books right now um, that really will outline a bunch of the policy dimensions to this. And I you know I think there there are some things that can be done at the state level and at the national level that would facilitate this transition. Um, but even within existing law there are a lot of things that people can do. So, I mean, there's, there's a company that I've been working very closely with called Cutting Edge Capital, um, based in Oakland. And Cutting Edge Capital really has hung up a shingle with the explicit objective of helping small companies create local stock issues and other newfangled forms of capitalization that you know can can begin to restructure the capital markets. Um, so you know I encourage anyone who is interested in this question uh, to Google cutting edge capital um, and to you know and there's a bunch of discussion groups that are linked to it and also my own website uh, smallmark.org um, contains periodic blogs and other postings that I'm doing on this subject. Well, I will certainly link to some of the things that you just mentioned in the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Um, you also talk about, well, it seems that local business development is really the wealth-generating frontier of the 21st century. Could you talk about opportunities for entrepreneurs in this context and maybe share a little of your own experience developing a business model for Bay-Friendly Chicken? Yes. Um, well, so... Interestingly, um, you know the the biggest, the most promising sectors I think for people to get into now are you know in the most basic kinds of goods and services. You know, a lot of people think, gee, you know, the way I can make an economic home run is become the next Bill Gates and develop some you know newfangled technology. And to be sure. You know, that is one route to wealth and success. But another route to wealth and success 
is to do the obvious and do it just a little bit better. And the obvious are things like food and energy and water and basic goods and services and basic financial services. We know how to do all these things really well at the local level already. I just finished a um, study for the Gates Foundation where we looked at 24 great local food businesses, 12 in the United States, 12 internationally. Um, and what we found were, you know, dozens of interesting techniques that these businesses are using to become more competitive. And these businesses, you know, they don't they don't hide these techniques up in uh, trademark law or special formulas. You know, these businesses are eager to share what they're doing because they're local. They don't they're not in a competitive position with other businesses out there. So. You know, Zingerman's Delicatessen in Ann Arbor is perfectly happy to share what do they do to make their business succeed with other delicatessens around the United States or, frankly, around the world. Now, you asked about my own experience in business. And, you know, I it, it's interesting. I think all of us have businesses inside of us. And, and you know, it, we, we, we should at some point in our life take a step to try to realize those businesses. And I've had a bunch of businesses inside of me, and this idea of creating a locally owned, local stock chicken company um, here in the Washington, D.C. area on the eastern shore of Maryland, which is dominated now by, you know, some mega chicken companies uh called Integrators, Tyson Chicken and Purdue Chicken. Um, you know, that was one of the businesses that I was very interested in developing um, over the last decade. And I think that what I discovered in myself, and I think, you know, other people discover this too, is that at the end of the day, you know, what I, what I do best, what I think I do best is, you know, Big picture thinking, advocacy, speaking, writing, um, you know, trying to help people with innovation. And that, you know, just focusing on this one business uh, was just not something I could sustain for a very long period of time. I mean, I worked with a bunch of um, chicken farmers and others who were interested in this project for about two, three years. Um, unfortunately, we did it at a point when it was right after the stock market had crashed, um, you know, around 2001, 2002, and uh, it just, we needed to raise a million dollars, and we just could not see a way of doing that within the time we had set for ourselves. So, in the end, we have a great business plan, uh, but we weren't able to really execute it. And frankly, I would say to anyone who's, again, listening to this podcast and has a desire to do a great small-scale chicken operation, you know, I'd be delighted to share our business plan with you and, uh, you know, take it, for, take it out for a spin. I'm sure you can improve on it. And if you've got a um, talent for execution that I did not have, I think you could do very well with this business plan. Yes, well, I think a lot of people, I think there's a lot of great ideas floating around out there, and I think a lot of people 
butt up against exactly what uh, you know you did in the many elements, whether it be the financing or or being spread too thin. I think a lot of uh, people with a local entrepreneurial spirit uh, feel like they're a bit spread too thin sometimes. But let me talk. Let's talk a little bit about. Um, I think probably the most frustrating aspect of all of this, uh, many of the things that you've already talked about, especially in terms of, uh, you know, implementing this as a practical strategy, are very positive and very optimistic and very visionary. Um, I think the part where, where I tend to feel frustration is the policy area. Um, it's 2010 and TINA tax breaks and subsidies are alive and well in municipalities and states around the country. Even as the rest of us are asked to tighten our belts during an ongoing economic emergency, uh, I just heard yesterday, or not yesterday, but uh, a few weeks ago, how Walmart is still getting all these tax breaks in the state of New Mexico, even as they're slashing education budgets and raising taxes. So many would argue that until the lowest community can spend billions on lobbyists, like the Tina businesses do, we won't be able to affect any change in policy making. What policies need to be put in place right now, and how do we get those policy changes made in the face of, really, the grim realities on the ground? Right. I mean, a very, very good question, a hard question. Um, and I guess um, the first thing I would say, and it really it needs to be emphasized, is that the order in which we've had this conversation is the right one, and that is... You know, we've talked about the predicates for local economies doing better. We talked about a bunch of things that consumers and investors and local businesses themselves can do to improve and seize on this opportunity for localization. And now, finally, we're talking about public policy. And, and, and I do believe that is the right order. And I know that, you know, myself, I ran a think tank in Washington, the Institute for Policy Studies, for six years. So I know, you know, what it's like to make policy, public policy, front and center your top priority. Um, but I believe that public policy needs to be our third or fourth priority, that our most important priorities are things we can do in the private marketplace as consumers, as investors, as business people, and that, you know, what is left over should then go into public policy. Now, that said, um, you know, I do believe that there are some really clear and important things that we can do um, to support local businesses and public policy. I think the first thing is, and, and you know, you, you sort of put your finger on it, is we need to undo this system of corporate bribery that we call economic development. And, you know, there's a lot of good proposals out there. Um, frankly, I think, you know, the first thing that one has to do is to identify where state and local money is going, who is receiving these grants, how many jobs did they produce for it, how reliable were they? Were they locally owned? And was this really worthwhile as an expenditure? Um, I know that in New Mexico, there was a debate over the past year to create a public record of these subsidies, and Governor Richardson, you know, stunningly 
vetoed it. Um, I think that the truth is is that when these when this kind of information goes public, people will be livid. When people realize how much money has been wasted on people on businesses with such little connection to the state, they will go ballistic. So I understand politically why Governor Richardson vetoed this. But I would say that this is a specific kind of enactment that New Mexico and other states should make to basically bring sunshine to the economic development process. Now, once we do that, I think, you know, it'll be easier to reform the process in other ways. And I'm frankly an, an agnostic, you know, whether we take a um, libertarian or a green or even a good government approach to reforming the subsidy uh, programs. I mean, the libertarian approach would say, get rid of all of them. Uh, the green approach would say, let's prioritize local, small, environmentally friendly businesses. Uh, or the good government approach would say, well, let's just give everyone, including local small businesses, an equal opportunity to submit RFPs for any of these subsidies when they become available so that backroom deals no longer are dominating the economic development scene. I could get behind any one of those reforms, and I think it would make a huge difference. Um, the next thing that I would do is I would do the securities reforms, make it easier for the state to issue stock, trade stock. Um, I would, and by stock I mean local stock, locally owned stock in local companies. Um, I would also try to get state pension funds and other state funds to begin investing in these securities. In New Mexico, there's a home run waiting to happen because there's a state investment fund, uh, something like $14, 15000000000 billion right now from severance taxes, from oil and gas leases, and from um, you know various various land, land leases over the years. And uh, these monies, I mean, just remarkably are... You know, 99.9% invested outside of New Mexico. You have more money invested in Malaysia than you have invested in New Mexico. And if you want to understand why it is New Mexico remains so poor in the face of funds like this, it's because they are so poorly, so stupidly invested. So state policy could begin to refocus that money on local business creation, local food businesses, local energy businesses, local financial businesses. Um, finally, I think that there's something to be said for state procurement. Um, you know, and the same thing that happens in investment also happens in public purchasing. That is to say, you know, in a well-functioning marketplace, given the role of local businesses, about half of an efficient set of state and local contracts should be going to local businesses, but in fact they're getting much less. And there are some specific reforms that we could do to the procurement process to make it easier for state and local governments to find good 
local business bidders, and, and we should do those kinds of reforms. So those would be the sort of starting places on overhauling the public policy process. There's a lot of other things that could be done, um, but, but, you know, I think starting with a few big emblematic issues first and the other things begin to fall into place. Well, let me make the point that uh, I take no credit whatsoever in doing um, this interview in the order that, that, as you said, is the correct order. I basically just used the chapters in your book to kind of formulate the order of the questions and the questions themselves. So actually, that was, uh, that was you who, who put this interview in the right order. Um, and also, I wanted to ask you, you have mentioned a few studies that you have done for the Gates Foundation, for the Kellogg Foundation, and it seems like some of the data that you're suggesting that we need to make this argument compelling uh, that you have researched for some instances, uh, is that are those studies available uh, online, and is there any way that uh, those can be linked to in the show notes for the podcast? Yes. Um, so the Gates study... Um, is available on its own website called communityfoodenterprise.org. Um, the Kellogg study has not been published yet, but when it is, um, I will make it available on the smallmart.org website, um, hopefully in the next couple of months. Um, the uh, you know various other pieces that I've written on local stock markets and the like, those things... Um, I also put on smallmart.org. Um, and the Bali site, um, which, you know, links to many of these studies as well, and we're putting together a kind of a local living economy economic development guide that will be online that will, you know, link around to all these things pretty easily. Uh, that, you know, people should be um, looking for that. That will probably be going public in late spring, and that's at uh, www.livingeconomies.org. Okay. Well, again, I will link to all of those things in the show notes for this episode. And, uh, of course, people can pick up your book, The Small Mart Revolution, and uh, much of this information is contained uh, therein as well, although not all of it. So you also believe community builders will play an important role in building up the lowest revolution. Can you talk about the role of community builders in the process? Well, the term community builders are really, you know, those who share a vision that the strongest world is one where communities internationally unite. Um, and and I, I, I believe that there are so many things that we can do collectively when smart communities with shared values begin to work together. Um, and uh, I, in the 1980s, when I first you know, got out of law school, I started an organization called the Center for Innovative Diplomacy. Um, and this organization organized several thousand mayors and city council members in the United States to get involved in a variety of foreign policy issues. So things like uh, divestment from South Africa and sister cities with controversial places like Nicaragua and uh, nuclear free zones and nuclear freeze resolutions and human rights initiatives and efforts to prevent depletion of the ozone layer. And what happened during this period is we saw that concerted initiatives by 
thousands of cities worldwide made a difference. Apartheid was perhaps the best example of that because a divestment movement took hold involving hundreds of cities, half the U.S. states, um, all kinds of institutions worldwide. And it built such a powerful movement that even when Ronald Reagan was president and the Republicans had a majority in the U.S. Senate, uh, those Republicans led an initiative to basically overturn the Reagan policy of constructive engagement and put into place U.S. sanctions. And those sanctions, in the end, um, were responsible for getting Nelson Mandela out of prison. Um, I see that as a paradigm that we can and should follow, not just in fighting the things in the world that we detest, but in building the things in the world that we love. And, you know, the more that we can get communities to share their state-of-the-art technology on small-scale energy production and small-scale food and chicken production and small-scale banking, the more we can get not just, you know, our communities, but communities worldwide to become more self-reliant. A world of self-reliant communities is a world that will be more just. It's a world that will not go to war for resources uh, or for other ridiculous needs. A world of self-reliant communities is a world that can then begin to have the wealth and target their wealth to tackle other big problems like global warming and you know the, the, the next round of environmental horribles that we face. So I am very hopeful that all of this work lays the economic predicate uh, for all kinds of uh, solutions at the global level. Well, on that note, uh, and finally, you end your book with the chapter called Globalizers. Can you talk about why you? it seems like a curious uh, chapter to end a book about relocalization with? Well, it's really, it's it's part of the argument that I just shared with you. Um, I sort of conflated those those two chapters together um, in, in what we were just talking about. What, what I really mean by this is that um, one of the ways that people make fun of and uh, don't take seriously the arguments of localization is they say, oh, you just want to cut this community off from the rest of the world, and that will guarantee it a lifetime of poverty. Um, and we know that only through global engagement can communities, you know, really gain wealth, power, and get themselves out of whatever problems they're facing. And to some extent, I agree with that. The interesting difference, though, is how you get there. And what I believe we now know is that the key to becoming powerful on the planet is to become economically self-reliant first. And from a base of economic self-reliance, you then have the wealth and the jobs and the ability to then selectively engage in the global economy in a more powerful way. I mean, that is the key to prosperity that we have seen at the national level and at the local level time and time again. And if we can then create 
networks of cities uh, and networks of governments and networks of non-governmental organizations that are supporting communities and moving towards self-reliance, this is how we can redefine globalization in a positive way. Globalization should not mean getting yourself hooked up on negative and um, self-destructive trade patterns. Self, uh, globalization should be seen as becoming as self-reliant as we can and sharing for free, absolutely for free, worldwide our success and helping other communities do likewise. Well, on that note, um, your vision is definitely very much in line with Gandhi's vision for globalization and community self-reliance. And Michael Schumann, I want to thank you for articulating this vision, for backing it up uh, so eloquently, and for articulating it with uh, statistics and figures and information that I think is very important for everybody to be aware of. And I want to thank you for joining us today on the Agro Innovations Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That concludes my interview with author Michael Schumann. Many of the websites that Michael Schumann mentions in the interview will be posted and linked to in the show notes for this episode of the podcast, so you can visit agroinnovations.com slash podcast and click through some of those links and find out more about some of the studies and the organizations that Michael Schumann talks about. Next week, I have an episode coming up uh, about shipping container housing projects, the seed project of Clemson University, so you can look forward to that. This is a reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro Innovations Podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. Agro Innovations is on Twitter, twitter.com slash agroinnovations, and Facebook as well. There are links to that on the website for the podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. Saludos. Saludos.